Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to a very special edition of Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Burley. Coming up on today's program here at Dufourstrasse 90, which is being cleaned up, thankfully, uh, in the windows beyond here. We have Fabian Kinzelman is here, also Oliver Strabus and Alexandra Andrus. We're going to get their views on all of the main stories that are happening across the weekend. Maybe also some thoughts on Zurifest as well. Uh, maybe, Oliver, uh, it sounds like you, you kind of gave it a miss last night, maybe even Friday night as well. Reggae got in the way. Yes, reggae got in the way. Yeah, I'm I'm one of those who's usually escaping the city at these uh, festivals. But yesterday I, I kind of touched it. I was at a reggae concert. It was close to Central Station. And I could feel a bit of the vibes of Zürich as well as this, at this reggae concert. Or it touched you as well. Uh, also, we're getting the latest news from Finland. Hi, I'm Petri Burtsov, Monocle's man in Helsinki. I'll be bringing you all the latest news from the Nordic region. Also, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, what's going to be probably a rather eventful week in Thailand. We'll be talking uh, to our James Chambers there as well. It's the 9th of July, 2023, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brule. Well, good morning and welcome to a very special edition of the program. Uh, I think the fullest uh, table we've had around our radio space uh, this this morning. Uh, Emma Nelson uh, is is with me as as really uh, my my proper um, yeah wing commander uh, today as well because normally she's also. You know, sort of clattering away orders as well and also sort of giving some sort of sense and form to the programme back in London. Anyway, have you uh, side by side today? It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the welcome. I'll try and keep a bit of order, but I know we've got a very busy 58 minutes to go. You are not even 50, 50 uh, coming up to 50, 54 minutes, uh, 53 minutes to go uh, as as well. Uh, we're also going to be uh, heading to not just Helsinki and not just Bangkok, uh, but also London as well. We should probably actually head over there uh, as, as we speak. Uh, our editor uh, is standing by, not our editor-in-chief, but our editor, uh, Josh Fennert, uh, is joining us from Midori House this morning. Good morning, Josh. Good morning, Tyler. Good morning to our, our panel of all the talents. Talk about having big shoes to fill. I've got to uh, do as well as Emma does from studio every week, as well as Andrew does on the phone, not from Palmer or from elsewhere. Let's hope I've got the stories to, uh, to back up the, uh, the big billing today. Okay, well, listen, why don't we start with you? Uh, we've already given uh, a little bit of airtime uh, to Switzerland. Uh, if we were to flip open uh, the, the papers this morning um, on your side of uh, Europe, Josh, uh, what's making news this morning? Um, a lot of things making news this morning and a lot of things, Tyler, looking towards next week. We obviously have a NATO summit in Vilnius, which is going to be covered uh, consummately by the foreign desk team here at Monocle. And actually, I was doing my homework about what they're going to cover, what they think the big issues are. And uh, they boiled it down to three things. They're, they're wondering about Jens Stoltenberg and who's going to succeed him. They're wondering about Sweden's will it, won't it accession to the alliance and what happens in Ukraine and what deals might be announced for them next. We've seen the reaction to Joe Biden's decision to supply cluster bombs. Joe Biden will actually be coming to London this evening on the way to Vilnius. And let's see if um, Rishi Sunak, embattled at home and embattled on the international stage, is going to persuade him otherwise. I really don't think so. But that's one of the stories that we're definitely going to be watching across the Monocle Minute and across the radio for the week to come. Do I have time for another? 
You, w- one more. Do you have a domestic story for us? Do you have anything about bison, uh, for example? Because I have to say that actually, it actually, some of the streets in Zurich look like actually a herd of bison went through them. Um, of course, all, albeit sort of uh, one's drinking cans of, of beer. With my diligent editor's hat on, I took the figure that Emma gave at the top of the programme and tried to work out how much cheese that would be a day for people in Switzerland. It's not quite a domestic story from the UK where things are a bit glum, things are a bit overcast politically and in terms of the weather. People are just hoping that Wimbledon will get a few uh, will get a few shots off but that works out as nearly 70 grams of cheese a day what are people doing in switzerland how are they is it could, could that be correct she's fine with that isn't she perfectly reasonable i uh, thought it might be a a sage a nod I, yeah i could feel that across the airwaves I don't know. I mean, maybe we should ask our Swiss guests who yes, can it, explain it, what, you know, is is there a daily allocation? What What is, what's the deal with cheese? And yeah, Fabian, maybe we'll start with you. D- daily cheese intake. Uh, I'd say a decent 100 grams. Okay, 100 grams. We'll go over to, to Oliver. Well, my kids eat cheese like bread, almost. <laughs> and we have... <laughs> I like that reverse concept. <laughs> yes. Uh, wow, I don't know per day, but uh, on a weekend, yes, we have a couple of cheese, uh, different styles on our plate. But dom- this is now here's the important question: domestic? Or are you are you oh, buying domestic, domestic or, or are you going to the Netherlands? Hey, <laughs> you know I'm half Dutch. Well, I think so yeah, people could guess by Strabus as 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 a last name. Exactly, yeah, so I'm just but wondering. nevertheless, I would a bit would never touch Dutch cheese. Never touch Dutch cheese. Well, no, um, it's it's clear. So. Um, like for the soft cheese, we would rather go for French cheese. Okay, yeah. and good. And for the rest, for domestic cheese, yes. Uh, also, we have a, a newer voice around the table uh, as well, Alexandra Andrist is here uh, this morning uh, from Swiss Info, uh, based in Bern, also joining us around the table. Good morning, very nice to see good you. Good morning. Okay, so Swiss listen, you're, you're from the capital, so uh, and, and I'm sure it's probably you know a very, very key international topic as mm-hmm. well, uh, the cheese discussion probably at Swiss Info. But before that, yeah, your daily intake. Well, I'm a two-head household, my dog and I, and it's a little bit of a fight who gets the last piece of cheese. Um, I think the bigger question is what cheese. This is true. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Anything between you but, and the dog? Are uh, dogs allowed to eat cheese? Dogs love cheese. Dogs love cheese. Love okay. Cheese. Okay. Uh, anything but Emmentaler. Okay. Emmentaler off the table. May I ask a question in terms of the consumption? Because now we've got it down to an average daily consumption. Is You know how we're all told not to do binge drinking? Mm. So, do you sort of save it up for the weekend and then, Oliver, do you just go bananas and, and, and raid the fridge? No, but no, we have cheese almost every morning on bread. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I agree with that. Josh, you're not weighing in on this back in London. Um, I don't know if my average cheese consumption could be generalised for the uh, for the UK population, but um, there's a lot of enthusiasm for the cheese. That's what I'm that's what I'm getting from uh, here in London. There's a lot of enthusiasm, and no one thinks that that figure's uh, outlandish. So I've done my uh, my sense check of it. And uh, Emma, I was wrong to question you. Oh, not at all. I'm delighted to delighted to be put in the right direction. Thank you, John. <laughs> okay, we're going to move it on from uh, yeah, cheese and, and, and sort of dairy topics in general. Oliver, we'll start with you. Um, whether you were looking at uh, the German press, the Dutch press, the Swiss press, uh, what, what are sort of the dominating stories for you this, uh, this weekend? Um, hey, it's more personal. I gave an interview to Watson, a Swiss uh, online newspaper, um, about the effect on the climate protests or renovate those that are blocking the streets. Um, and its effect on the expected vote shares for the Green Party. And I thought it was quite obvious that this is not great for them. So it creates lots of uh, negative press to the, to the climate movement. 
Um, and I was surprised about all the reac reactions I got on this interview. So, so on both 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 sides, or just one no, direction? No, one direction basically. So people from the movement that were very surprised that I would say that this hurts the Green Party, and they they were kind of surprised how much re resistance in the population this creates. So this this reminded me again that like, um, if you are in a movement, it, it's quite hard to to still have like a, a general view on public opinion and, and they really don't have a feeling anymore for what they, how they affect public opinion. Well, Josh, also, you mentioned Wimbledon at the start of this as well. We also had uh, some protesters um, at Wimbledon uh, a little bit earlier in the week. How did that go down? And not well. Uh, actually, not not well at all. Um, and there's been a lot of uh, talk in the papers about um, how little Rishi Sunak has spoken about the environment. But actually, people going about their day to day, crawling up the M25, um, worried about people um, disrupting sporting events, which they may have paid uh, a lot for their tickets for. Pe pe people are a bit uneasy about it. One interesting thing did happen um, during the week um, at Lords, not far from Midori House here in London, where one of the cricketers playing for England against Australia in the Ashes series picked up one of the people who walked onto the pitch and there were some great um, great front pages of him being kind of like sort of hogtied and carried off the pitch by this sporting figure, this burly kind of ginger-bearded sporting figure. And I think there may be in that image something about how the public feels about how these disruptive protests are, are, are really not getting to the heart of the issue. That said, there is an appetite for the politicians, whose job it is, to actually start addressing these things a bit more seriously. One can assume there are probably a few cheers on the pitch as well. I think it was the most cheers England have had in a cricket match for some time. <laughs> uh, Fabian, uh, I guess, well, one thing we're talking about just before we went on air, of course, the ongoing, um, of course, neutrality discussion. Uh, and, and obviously, um, yeah, this conversation about these leopard tanks, uh, which are sitting mothballed, Swiss leopard tanks, uh, which are mothballed uh, and are actually sitting in Italy and, uh, and what to do with them and a lot of pressure as to maybe they should uh, be released from their pen um, in northern Italy where they're sitting and, uh, and, and sent on to the Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about two leopard tanks, Leopard 1, Leopard 2. Benno, your former security correspondent who sits behind me, could pro possibly explain way better than I can. But like, it's basically... He's just, he's just sort of just itching. He's like, yeah. Can't you see Emma? He's like, he just wants to just jump <laughs> in here and talk nervous. about leopard tanks. Very, yeah. it's, it's all I get the impression he thinks about, but you're not, yeah. Benno's not allowed to, are you, Benno? No. 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 no, we, no, no. Benno, please just jump in in case I'm explaining something wrong here. Um, so um, what we have is like, I mean... The Allies already asked Switzerland about like ammunition. They kind of gave up. Switzerland won't give them ammunition. But what they ask for now is like two tanks, the Leopard One and the Leopard Two. Leopard One sitting in Italy, um, and they hope like they could buy it back and then export it to Ukraine. And they didn't. They actually didn't expect that Switzerland would block that. Um, now they might get Leopard Two, um, but that's just like um, as a replacement. For example, in Germany, who gave like Germany gave ta their tanks to Ukraine, so they are getting like tanks back from Switzerland. Um, just uh, on that topic, and, and we could, we can move on from uh, from geopolitical if we want, Alexandra. But uh, if you were sort of scanning the papers, if I was looking at Swiss Info uh, right this second, and I think I did pick up the story about the Bison from Swiss Info. I think that's where we got it from, didn't? Thank you, Tyler. <laughs> uh, what's making news for you? Well, for us, it's. Um if I may backtrack a bit, we have a, a Dutch on the table, right? So the collapse of the Dutch government on Friday, that's a topic. Yeah, true. It's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. 
and and on that, I mean, it's of course this is is been driven obviously by the the. It's, it's an immigration discussion, mm-hmm. um, and of course, how the Netherlands has dealt with it or is not dealing with it. Um, and maybe I was just going to, I mean, anyone who wants to jump in on this one, but it, does this really become, yeah, it's not just a flashpoint, but it's in a way, maybe Oliver also commentary for, you know, this could be sort of the first of many governments. And of course, migration policy or action or, or inaction uh, as well, you know, is, is a defining feature, of course, if you look across the border to France as well right now. Um, and do you think that this become, moves yeah, further up the agenda. I mean, of course, we can talk about politicians um, and what their green policies and environmental policies might be, but also uh, migration in Europe as we move into a hot summer as well. Absolutely. I mean, you can see it in the polls. Migration is becoming, again, more salient issue over the last year or so. Um, I think in the Netherlands, I mean, migration played a role, but he's also the prime minister, uh, Rutte. He is very good tactician and he knows when he has to call elections and it seems like it's a very good moment for him. Uh, although I'm always a bit surprised he takes so much risk because the, the party landscape in the Netherlands is very uh, fragmented and there are very often surprises in elections. So, but I think, okay, it's about migration, but it's also about a prime minister who tries to call for new elections in a strategic, for him, strategically interesting moment. Indeed. Um, on, on the topic um, of, of elections uh, as well, we uh, are going to be heading to, uh, to Bangkok uh, and our James Chambers uh, is, uh, is standing by for us there. Uh, of course, this is uh, anyone who looks at the Bangkok Post or, or certainly any any media uh, from the region. Uh, we know that we've been living with one set of results, uh, but of course, uh, a prime minister has not uh, been uh, appointed at this time, but we're looking, of course, uh, at that happening, I believe, on Thursday. But anyway, our James Chambers, uh, our bureau chief in Bangkok, is standing by. Uh, good afternoon, James. Good morning, Tyler. Uh, so uh, you're just uh, fresh from uh, Jakarta, uh, but now back in, in Bangkok. And as I said, it, it, this is, of course, is is the defining story. What is going to happen? Uh, yeah, if you're to believe the spin, uh, it looks... Uh, like uh, Kunpita uh, from the new, uh, Move Forward uh, party uh, might get through. Uh, but then, of course, if I listen to uh, some of the other whispers out of Bangkok, um, it could go the other direction come Thursday. I think that's exactly right, Tyler. It's uh, a case of nobody knows, nobody can tell for sure. Uh, and Thursday is going to be uh, very interesting. That's the day when the new parliament will get the first vote on the Prime Minister. Uh, And I guess what's interesting about this vote is that it'll be the 500 new MPs, but also these 250 senators who were appointed uh, by the the chaps who led, the military chaps who led the coup in 2014. So they're very much seen as in the pocket uh, of the the military, of the generals, um, and they're not seen uh, as people likely to vote uh, for for Peter and the move forward. Um, But uh, move forward are coming out and and saying they're they're very confident they can get uh, enough votes they need to get 64 uh, people extra people outside of their coalition to vote for peter uh, and so we'll see on thursday how successful they've been 
So there was this sort of sense of of jubilance, uh, James, uh, that you know, aside from lung, young leadership, but also fresh leadership, that there was this this real sense of of excitement off the back of, of course, this this first round in in a way. Um, what, what's the mood on on the street now? Because you know, when when you and I were chatting when I was there a few weeks ago, um, you know, many ties you spoke to still felt that this is going to get pushed through, but at the same time, also. You know, it's Thailand. Um, it's not over until it's over. Um, but if you sort of could somehow sort of give us a flavor of the mood on the street. Well, there was a, a very influential nationwide poll that was just released, and that suggested like two thirds of the population do believe that move forward and, and uh, Peter will become uh, the next prime minister. But as you said, this is Thailand. And if you look at all the potential outcomes, uh, of this that are still in play, we could go in any direction. I mean, it could be move forward, become the opposition. Uh, we could see, um, I mean, you could you could still see tanks on the street. You could see some kind of uh, another coup. Um, this is really a, a clash uh, between uh, the future of Thailand and the past. I mean, the first, the, the vote in May, the election, uh, was a big indication that there are millions out there who want to see real change um, in Thailand. But uh, the establishment, all of the old institutions, they still hold a lot of power, a lot of influence. And since that vote in, in May, you know, there's been a lot of things happening behind the scenes uh, that no one can really know of and a lot of people can't really talk about so um come thursday we will see how effective the old guard has been in blocking um move forward but as i said this this is just i mean this is at the the, the next the next salvo um if if peter doesn't get enough votes on thursday then there will be a second vote in parliament the following week on the 19th um and i guess the question people are asking is how many votes uh, will they have in in Parliament before somebody has to suggest another candidate? Um, it's, uh, you know, move forward, as I said, have come out and said they're very confident, but it's probably quite telling that they've called a rally of their supporters for this afternoon. In about an hour, they've asked for people to take to the streets in central Bangkok. And I think we're going to see this 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 de develop over the next few weeks if move forward doesn't um get into power i think their supporters will hit the hit the streets and we're not just talking about the radicals you know that the conversations i've been having over the last few months with people you know who work just just normally or even in the government have said that you know the people have chosen move forward and if they don't get into power then they're going to take to the streets there is an almost existential problem with this though isn't there james because move forward is elected on an anti-establishment ticket so whatever move forward said it would do would absolutely fly in the face of, of of the military authorities that have been in power for the you know for almost a decade now. Exactly right, Emma. They're, they're kind of caught uh, between you know their supporters uh, and the establishment because I mean they they won big in the election because they promised real change and they had policies that will radically reform China uh, Thailand and one of the big ones or the biggest one is their promise to take a look at Section 112 of the Criminal Code, which is the Les Majestés Law. Um, now, no one else will touch that. Even the members of their coalition have said they'll have nothing to do with it. But Move Forward has to, has to stick by it because it's what their supporters want. And if they step away from that or make any indication that they're not going to follow through, 
then their supporters are, aren't going to be very happy with them. But the problem is the, 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 the senators and all the establishment MPs, they're coming out and saying, we're not going to vote for you as long as you stick by the, the reform of the Les Majestés. So they're in a bit of a bind um, and they're, 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 they're newcomers to politics. So it'll be interesting to see if they can find a very, 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 very narrow path through all of this. Uh, James, just before we go, um, the, the sort of the, the hopes of, of the, the broader neighbourhood, uh, when we talk about ASEAN, and of course, you know, in many ways, uh, you know, Bangkok, you know, being seen as, as if, you know, not the hub, but Singapore might have something to say about this, uh, or certainly one of the, the co-hubs for the region um, a, as well. So, you know, if I'm looking um, in from, uh, from Vietnam, uh, from, from Cambodia, how, how important is it for, uh, of course, Thailand uh, to... Yeah, move out of this this period of not quite instability, but uh, but certainly the unknown. Well, if you're looking at it from an, from an ASEAN perspective, or even from a Thai perspective, the you know the Move Forward Party and 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 Peter, who could be Prime Minister, that you know Thailand potentially has a, an absolute PR superstar on its hands. I mean, if this guy becomes Prime Minister, you know he's young, he's 42, he's Harvard educated. Harvard educated, he's progressive, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's good looking, he, you know, he could be the poster for this region um, and really lead ASEAN forward. Um, but if he's denied, uh, then we're essentially, you know, back at square one. And then in a few weeks time, Cambodia heads to the polls. Um, and, you know, Hun Sen, the dictator there, has outlawed all other parties and it'll be a, a one-party election. Um, and so, you know, this part of the world will be looking uh, far different. So I think, you know, Thursday is not just a potential turning point for Thailand, but, you know, it could drag this whole region forward and, and you know, make it look, you know, very positive and, and forward-looking at a time when a lot of the places around the world are looking very dismal right now. James Chambers in Bangkok, uh, thanks very much. Of course, we'll be uh, catching up with you um, in the lead up to this uh, Wednesday. And I think you probably have a very busy Thursday uh, with us as well. It's just gone uh, almost uh, 26 minutes past the hour, 26 minutes past 10 here in Zurich. I'm with my colleague, uh, Emma Nelson as well. Emma, when we came in this morning, you probably, you, you surveyed the tables. You were talking about sort of the um, the general sort of mess of the streets after this big festival in Zurich. And then you, you probably saw what happened to our tables out front as yes, well. Yes, um Someone has decided to make their mark, haven't they? Yes, they have. I mean, make, make their mark, um, we, we, we can say, um, with, I don't know, some type of enormous marker pen. Anyway, we, we now have the tag of, uh, uh, of, of one of the Zurich football clubs all over our tables. And, and at enormous expense, we'll have to, of course, clean that now. Um, and it's always been a bit of a, a more than a bugbear, this, this sort of indulgence and probably, I don't know, there's, someone said there's a really, really good consultant who's up in Stockholm who can go and talk to anyone in sort of the legal world and how you can stop uh, graffiti overnight. And it's, it's pretty simple. It's just you, you bring in tougher codes to, of course, penalize those who damage property. It's an interesting time for in the last 48 hours, though, because I think all rules seem to have been just thrown out of the window in the yes. last 48 hours here in Zurich that you it is not often that I find myself kicking through empty beer cans on my way walking down to Furstrasse. So that's something that I never thought would ever happen. So I wonder whether this is an endemic problem or whether, I mean, why you would ever well, take no, a marker but, pen well, graffiti, to a party? Well, graffiti is a problem in, in, in the country. So it's something that's somehow 
yeah, indulged. They sort of, this is like, we, we let people do this. We don't let them do other things. Josh, you're back in London. We have a story in the current issue, don't we, about um, a great solution that, uh, that they have in Tokyo, which is this group called Clean and Art. And I'm wondering if um, we should set up a, a Zurich branch of, uh, of this uh, particular uh, troupe. Absolutely, yeah. It's one of our um, observations about graffiti removal in the Out Now July-August issue of the magazine. And um, I think it's uh, uh, something that we don't talk about very much. I very rarely see it in the newspapers, but the cost uh, taken on by private individuals for graffiti and usually pretty uninspired graffiti. Luckily, I think uh, in London, the UK a little bit more. We've got beyond that idea that um, estate agents espoused for so long that graffiti equaled creativity in an area. And we're starting to realise just the mindlessness of it. Um, when I was in New York recently, they still have a problem with it there. And I think also, without coming down too heavy-handed, I think there should probably be just a bit more in the way of punishment. Maybe people going out to cover up other people's graffiti when they get caught and just to see the amount of damage and uh, some distress that it causes as well to otherwise beautiful and peaceful cities in the centre of Europe and beyond. It is, it is strange, Josh, when you actually suddenly get that cultural acceptance of it. Because if you go to Paris, it's absolutely everywhere, mm. over all over the, um, the metro and what have you. All of the infrastructure. All yeah. over the infrastructure. Whereas the minute this happens in Switzerland, everybody goes, hang on a minute, we've got, we stop this now before suddenly every bridge every pavement. But I think I think it's moving that way here. We were just saying before we went on air, you go to Bern. I said, it looks like, you know, I said, if I was a sort of a diplomat getting a posting, you'd think a sort of rule of law completely unraveled because people almost take a certain sense of pride of just going and spraying the infrastructure and you read how much it costs. I mean, Josh, you said to the taxpayer, but also uh, oh, you mean to the private sector, but also to the taxpayer as well. I mean, it's, I think it's probably tens of millions that SBB has to, the, the Swiss Federal Railway has to spend on actually cleaning this up. So anyway, maybe we need to, um, the Japanese can teach us a trick or two, can't they, Josh? I think, I think they definitely can. Uh, Josh uh, Fennert, back in London, I'm going to uh, leave you to get on uh, with your Sunday. It's uh, coming to the bottom of the hour. Um, a little bit later, we're going to be heading uh, to Helsinki. We're going to be uh, speaking to our Petri Burstov uh, there. Uh, and also, we're heading off to Mykonos uh, as well. Uh, we will be getting a few tips, uh, of course, uh, on all that's coming up uh, for summer. And I can say, actually, for summer, our new book of uh, Sun and Swim uh, is uh, just about to uh, at least hit um, our uh, newsstands and bookshelves as well. Also, Mediterranean. Monocle Mediterranean is also on the way. But first, it's uh, just bottom of the hour. Emma Nelson has the news headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Russia has denounced the return home of a group of Ukrainian soldiers brought back from Turkey by the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. The U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said 10 hours of talks with senior Chinese officials have been productive and have helped to put the U.S.-China relationship on surer footing. Switzerland will import more cheese than it exports this year for the first time. But for the first time in a thousand years, a calf belonging to a species of bison that became extinct in the wild in Western Europe in the Middle Ages has been born in Switzerland. And a hotel has employed a security guard to police the swimming pool area for sunbed hoggers. Footage filmed by a guest at the hotel in Tenerife show a man in a high-vis yellow vest inspecting the sun loungers, appearing to make note of how long the towels had been there. Unoccupied loungers have the towels removed. Back to you, Tyler. I know you like, I know sun and swim. Probably no high-vis high vest there. No high-vis vest. But it was interesting. We went down for a swim this morning, um, just our little local park. And you could see someone had already been down probably quite early and already, you know, sort of defined their patch for the day. So everything was sort of in place, but you tell they sort of, they went home 
to jump back into bed or something, but they would be back a little bit later. And this is one of the magical things. You can sort of leave all of your things here and it will probably be there in a few hours. How do you feel about a high-vis vest behind? By the I, I, I feel, I, I don't feel great about high-vis vests at all. I mean, maybe they can be on, you know, tarmacs at airports, but that's about the end of it. Okay. Yeah. So it's a balance to strike, isn't it? It, it a is. A pool lounger or a high-vis vest? Which, uh, way, are we, which way are you going? Oh, uh, well, I, I'm, yeah, no, I think you know. I think you, you can probably guess guess the direction. Um, I'm also here with our, our other guests uh, today. Fabian Kinselman is here. Uh, also, Oliver Stravis. New voice around the table. Uh, also, uh, Alexandra Andrist uh, from uh, Swiss Info. Um, Alexandra, for people who aren't, uh, you know, we talk a lot about, and, and we have people on from the Tagus Anzeiger and from Blick, and, uh, of course, uh, Fabian, uh, of course, with Handelszeitung. But for people who don't know Swiss Info, uh, where does that Swiss Info uh, sit within the Swiss and global media landscape? What's your me- remit? Uh, what do you have to deliver to your readers, listeners, viewers, etc.? So Swiss Info really tries to connect with the Swiss abroad. Um, we try and in 10 different languages, get all the news from Switzerland for people abroad. And that's, that's how we connect. We're- uh- and, and in terms of the editorial, I would say, mandate, the types of stories when you have uh, a meeting uh, in the morning with your editors, um, what, what are you looking for? Because is it part of a balance to speak to Swiss abroad, but how much does it also serve a role as well? Um, yeah, to, of course, uh, yeah, be a voice in terms of yeah, economic input to the country, uh, cultural output, uh, and, and, and everything in between. We really try and get all the political stories in a very balanced and fair way so that the Swiss abroad can also make uh, an informed decision on how to vote. This is really important in the upcoming election. There's a big swing to the right that's been talked about already, and that's, that's our main focus, a lot of the information. Yeah, maybe I can add to that that uh, I use um, sometimes stuff from Swiss Info in my classes because they are so well, um, yeah, so well researched and and they explain Switzerland uh, the political or the politics of Switzerland not only to Swiss abroad but I would say really to the to the world outside. So um, I really like. Uh, Swiss Info as a source, and, and I'm using it actually for teaching. And I've always sort of thought, if we look back and rewind to, to Brexit, um, if, if the BBC you know, and, and other organizations, but primarily the role of, of, of the public broadcaster, it had actually taken a page or two from Swiss Info in the way that they set up anything for you know, a referendum in this country. It is so meticulously researched, and it's so clear uh, in terms of you know, what you're going to get, de- depending on which way you want to vote. Uh, and it's, it's, it's sort of appalling, I think, when you look back, just at, at how it was handled by, by the BBC. I, I, wonder, I wonder how... Well, there was clearly issues of strings being pulled left, right and centre when it came to breakfast, Brexit, breakfast, Brexit and the BBC and, and what happened. And this is an argument that I don't think will go away until either the BBC or or the government win um, and it will be a, 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 a sort of a big row but I think the the glorious thing about Alexander your your publication is that I use it all the time because of that clarity and that ability to place it within context and it's very reassuring nowadays to go and find a news website which is up to date which is relevant which is well researched but at the same time you know it will have a sense of balance to it and a coolness to it because i it's it's really noisy out there on the internet when you're trying to find news and do you i would love to know how you go through the thought processes of saying we have to be balanced we have to step back we might take a little bit longer to publish this there's not that not wrong for long feeling that you sometimes get with some websites yeah, um, that's that's exactly our mandate. 
to be balanced, to be fair, to really take that step back and understand what it is people maybe need to understand better or get a brighter view of. I think our strength in the 10 languages is that everyone comes from not only a cultural background that they understand that they're, what their readers are really interested in their home countries, but as well as being very knowledgeable about the political and economical scape of Switzerland and addressing that in a way that really helps people abroad and in other countries understand Switzerland better. Fabian, you're with, uh, of course, a, a private sector uh, publication, uh, the Handelszeitung. Uh, you've got, of course, the beat of covering uh, the world uh, as, as well. Uh, but of course, as, as a taxpayer, uh, but also a journalist on, on the other side uh, who's not uh, benefiting from the public purse, how important is a strong uh, Swiss public broadcasting system? So, of course, you know, Swiss Info being the, the let's say, the, the, the international arm of it. But then, of course, you've got uh, broadcasting um, in, in four languages, uh, of course, uh, domestically as well. Oh, um, you, you won't hear any criticism from me um, <laughs> for, for public broadcasting. I think that's like... Um, it's essential for a democracy and Swiss Info is playing like... A huge role. I also use it all the time. I know that like lots of my like Ukrainians in Switzerland really appreciate that you put this um, Ukrainian language platform into place last year. Um, so of course, like we have to talk about like um, how they challenge some of the private media companies when it comes to like, for example, entertaining, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but like for general infos and news, um, yeah, absolutely essential. Well, maybe on the topic of uh, public broadcasting and a nation which also has, uh, yeah, a very, very strong uh, state, a public state broadcaster uh, as well. We should head to Helsinki. Uh, our Petri uh, Burstoff is uh, standing uh, by there for us uh, this morning. Uh, hello, Petri. Good morning, Tyler. Uh, so just uh, maybe maybe tell us, uh, uh, and just if you can uh, just join in uh, on this. Uh, if I went and uh, I headed to Tampere, or I I, I went, uh, uh, yeah, maybe, um, yeah, maybe maybe where everyone sort of um, hanging out, uh, you know, in their summer houses uh, down in Hanko or somewhere like this. Uh, how, how do Finns feel about Ulla uh, uh, the, the the state broadcaster? Uh, well, I have to say, Tyler, I'm a little bit biased since I've been also freelancing for them for now 13 years. But I mean, um, general mood in, in the country is is really uh, positive towards uh, Wiley. I think it has like North Korean level approval rating, something like 90 percent. It's by far the most trusted media source in, in, in the country and has by far the biggest uh, viewership uh, figures as well. It's uh, main evening news bulletin, the half past eight o'clock news is, is an institution that gets, uh, you know, close to a million out of the five million fins almost almost every night. So, you know, people do like it. Of course, uh, since it is uh, <clears throat> not license funded, but tax funded, there's always the debate of, you know, uh, whether it should be doing sort of entertainment. It does, for example, the Finnish version of Dancing with the Stars and programs uh, programs like that, you know, and, and, and there are some people who argue that, hey, shouldn't this be left up? For the uh, to the commercial channels, but especially the current affairs and the news programming is is in really high esteem. Uh, Patrick, maybe just uh, we we had Josh talking a little bit earlier. We have uh, President Biden touching down in London uh, this afternoon en route to Vilnius, uh, but also um, Air Force One uh, is also going to be uh, touching down uh, at uh, Advanta Airport uh, in Helsinki as well. 
Yeah, that's right. He's coming on a visit um, on, on, on Thursday next week. And there is a kind of a sense of uh, trepidation and excitement in the air in, in Helsinki. Because, of course, uh, somebody of that caliber visiting uh, a small city like Helsinki and a small country like Finland, you know, um, they they have to close down and cordon off sort of half of the streets of, of, of Helsinki. And I was just walking around yesterday and I already saw sort of these like black vans with tinted windows um, in a lot of the major hotels, uh, secret service agents already sort of uh, checking out apartment uh, uh, roofs and, and, you know, placing uh, there. I don't know what they <laughs> God knows what they placed in there. But, you know, and most importantly, uh, my favorite swimming spot, Ala Seapool, is going to be closed. And I think the CNN, if I'm correct, is, is going to take over uh, the whole swimming pool and the adjoining area for their stand-up spot. So, uh, yeah. It's going to be a major undertaking for a city the size of Helsinki. Uh, just uh, on that, uh, of course, uh, we have uh, a, a summit uh, happening in Vilnius, and um, you know, and, and at the same time, of course, uh, you have your neighbors, uh, Sweden, uh, still sitting uh, in NATO NATO limbo, uh, and and then, of course, uh, yeah, the situation obviously, you know, rather different in terms of. Uh, of NATO membership um, in, in in Finland, um, but maybe on on the Swedish side, uh, what happens uh, with with NATO this week? So they're really pushing to the last minute with the negotiations. I mean, we saw the Prime Minister Kristesson, uh, uh, Ulf Kristesson, was in Washington this week negotiating with uh, with Biden. Then we saw in Brussels, we saw negotiations between Sweden and 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 Turkey and and NATO. And you know, they are just negotiating really up until the last minute before the summit. And I think during the the summit as well, I, I sort of heard through the grapevine when uh, we were looking at the schedules of Vilnius that, you know, they're really tentative at this point because uh, they're going to be talking about Sweden a lot. And it would just be a, a very clear sort of uh, victory for also for President Biden. I mean, he's going to probably give his big speech in Vilnius to say that they not only managed to get Finland, but also Sweden to to uh, join NATO during his uh, his term in office. Because, you know, let's remember that Biden hasn't really had any sort of major foreign policy break uh, breakthroughs and victories. So this would be a really uh, sort of a large uh, credit to him. Uh, I just want to bring Oliver and uh, and Fabian in, in in on this topic. Oliver, if you're sort of a betting uh, man and and looking at, of course, you know, we've we've had a, a high profile, uh, of course, uh, arrest uh, in uh, you know in in, in Sweden uh, I've occurred. Uh, this is uh, you know you you could argue. Um, yeah, has obviously sort of, you know, risen up sort of the news rankings as a bit of symbolism uh, around this, uh, that of course, Sweden takes it seriously at the same time. Uh, you know, then we, we've had yet another, um, yeah, you know, I guess, permission slip given by the, the police to, of course, uh, burn the Koran at, at, at the same at the same time. So if you were um, thinking about, uh, and you were uh, one of the uh, yeah, I, I would say bureaucrats working um, in, uh, in in Sweden's Ministry of Defense. Would you be getting excited about a, a desk in Brussels anytime soon? Um, I thought so until I recently saw or read that uh, Orban is now basically also taking the stance that he's against uh, having Sweden in NATO. So this made me doubt whether this is going to happen that soon and whether there are some new alliances uh, of Turkey with other players in order to block it so that they are not far enough. But it's so difficult to know what is happening behind the scenes, uh, what, where the negotiations are. So what's, 
yeah what's the game of them um with the media no so they of course they in a negotiation you never want the other side to believe that you're basically ready to um yeah to agree on a compromise in fact I mean, we've come out of an interesting week where we're still in the story uh right now which is of course about uh this sky shield uh air defense system um which is also about alliances are you in are you out mm-hmm. neutral switzerland uh, of course coming to the table because of uh their their purchase of patriot missiles are going to be part of sky shield exactly. uh, now now um uh, as as well but i mean if we reflect on uh, on on nato uh and and certainly sweden's role in it um no matter what is it still a fait accompli uh, that you can somehow yeah, yeah that you'll have this sort of you know empty sort of gap um in the north of europe um does it happen at some point uh, well i mean as long as there are negotiations happening it's not a complete empty gap right like it's always a question about will they won't they and that's already kind of like posing a threat to russia or like sending a signal and the same if, is with uh, with switzerland getting closer to nato i mean they're doing the maneuvers together now like sky shield um is probably coming so that makes sense in a um, during the conflict. Um, I just want to go back to uh, to Helsinki, uh, just in the interest of time, uh, Petri, two stories. I mean, it's been um, a bit of a bumpy start for the new government uh, in, in Finland. Um, but there's also uh, with your neighbors, uh, yeah, at the, at the high north anyway, um, with uh, with your friends uh, in in Norway, uh, also an interesting story um, about their their concept of a of a tourist uh, tax uh, as well. You can either have one minute for one uh, one story or 30 seconds for both. All right, I'll, I'll just go for the tourist tax since we've reported the Finnish government's mishaps quite uh, extensively. So Oslo is uh, proposing, or at least, let's say the Green Party is, is proposing uh, uh, a tourist tax to visit Oslo. And, uh, you know, we're talking like 10 to 50 Norwegian kroners, so this is going to be less than five five euros, and it would be collected by hotels. And, you know, they will use it to um, upgrade and expand parks and swimming areas and so on. But, you know, I just find it interesting. I mean, there's nothing like this in, in Helsinki, at least. And then, you know, Norway being one of the richest countries in the world, essentially, you know, is this uh, what kind of a signal do they want to send to tourists by by introducing such a tax? It's not like they don't don't have the money. I mean, I understand all of this in like cities like big tourist cities like Venice, but Oslo, like really. Uh, it, in, it, in, indeed. Uh, Patrick, of course, uh, again, uh, another busy news week uh, ahead. Uh, you've got uh, all that's happening uh, in, in Vilnius uh, on the other side of the Baltic, of course. Uh, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more from you about your blocked uh, swimming uh, patch uh, as as well. <laughs> Wh- whether it's uh, U.S. Secret Service or CNN who took it over, uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about our Petri Burstov uh, in Helsinki. Thanks very much uh, for that. Uh, Emma Nelson uh, with me here just before we go to it for, for a short break. I'm sort of uh, listening uh, to 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 all of, all of that. Um, I was also sort of wondering, you know, we were talking last night about sort of the mobilization of, of news crews and and also and the demobilization too. So many cutbacks actually happening. So it's interesting we talk about Swiss Info um, and that there's still this ability to be able to broadcast in ten languages, etc. On the other side, I mean, we're seeing you know complete demobilization of, of of various news organizations. You know, I think back to many many summers ago in London. You know, when you were a young journalist. You were able to sort of go out there, knock on many doors. There were tons of foreign news bureaus to to get your start in journalism. A lot of that's starting to shut her now. It is. Um, And the one thing that news organizations no longer have is time. Insofar as they don't have the time to get someone to go and knock on doors and do their research. And it's it's twofold. Firstly, the 
the pressure is financial because they don't have the time to send a journalist out just to go and have a look at what might be out there. It has, um, it has to be a sure bet today. It right. has to be a sure bet today. It might be a cut and paste from a press release. Um, but then they also have that assumption that if you can write, you can also film. And that's not always the case. Your brain might be very good at writing a good script or you can write to pictures, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can do a live broadcast on a phone from the scene of, I think I saw one on, 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 the, on the BBC a few weeks ago when that, the, the migrant boat sank near Greece and the, the, the correspondent was basically on his phone live for the 10 o'clock news. And I suddenly thought, what? Not, not does it compromise what we see as viewers, but it also compromises what people see when they are being interviewed by the BBC, that they think actually if there's, a, if there's a news crew that turns up with a camera crew, with the bells and whistles, or someone rocks up with a mobile phone, who are you going to see as having more gravitas? Mm. There's also a, an issue as well in terms of, again, we talked a little bit earlier about the pol political push and pull. And when the, the battle for the news organisation becomes a political fight which is effectively what it is it means that bigger programs which might have more global reach and more relevance to the outside world get dropped in and what they do is they swap it for something which is a, effectively a phone-in on a domestic program which no one if you're listening watching in malaysia or in south america is going to think well that's got nothing to do with me and it'll switch off no also and i have to say i mean amazing amazing you know well amazing to also have real live bodies around a radio table this morning as well. So thank a you. A lot of bodies. A lot of bodies it's as really well. really warm. No, but I think it's also, you know, it is important because I think we've entered into a time right now also in broadcasting where, you know, you could all be, maybe, and you'd love to be home, you know, in your pajamas or, or on the balcony or by the lake or something, and you could do the program this way. But um, it's much nicer having everyone around a table and, of course, having phone-ins from Helsinki and Bangkok and, and elsewhere. But. but we show up and that's the nice feeling. And I hope that you can hear that. Because if I'm doing something in my pajamas at my kitchen table, it's really how often quite does that happen? Not very often. Right. Not very often at all. Um, because it's quite nice, and I'm sure everybody here this morning will agree that we, we're standing up. We've got a nice cup of coffee to keep us going. And guess what? We we you you really commit to it, don't you? Also, the audience helps. Yeah, having an audience as well. So thank, thank you to our audience uh, as well, which we'll come back to uh, in a moment. It's just gone at 10.49 uh, here in Zurich. It's 11.49 uh, in Mykonos. We're heading there in a moment uh, for a few book tips, but before that, uh, a very short break. Monocle's July-August double issue contains our annual Quality of Life survey, where we rank the world's top cities, meet local heroes, and tour the neighbourhoods getting it right. See if your city made the cut and where topped our livable leaderboard. Elsewhere, we head to Bratislava to meet its architect-turned-mayor, visit an innovative infrastructure project in rural Alabama, get down on the dance floor in Mexico City and take a thrilling ride across Europe's theme parks. The issue also contains a business report into the owners reviving their high streets and tours a design icon towering above Valencia, plus much more. Kick back this summer with Monocle's July-August issue. Order your copy today or subscribe to get instant access online. A 
and you're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Burley, also Emma Nelson, uh, here in Zurich uh, today as well for this uh, special edition of this program. Uh, our colleague uh, Desi, one of our, our producers and uh, also someone who looks after all of the audio constantly, she's been asking me, Emma, every other day, is the show going on recess this summer? When, when is the <laughs> summer break? Uh, and I still can't give her that, uh, that, that, uh, that response because uh, there could be something sort of very large uh, on the horizon, which is going to keep us around the microphones. Can I just uh, say that Desi's blushing? I know she, yeah, Desi is blushing. <laughs> but uh, quite pink. I know. Anyway, but uh, one of the reasons uh, that we're, we're, we, we might be sticking around a little bit longer um, is in sort of the, the interest uh, of, of all things uh, literary. But uh, I'll leave everyone in suspense um, about that. But as part of a regular series um, for getting, you know, things that you want to read, um, of course, maybe on the lounger on your towel, wherever you may be. And I'm going to put all of our uh, our guests on the spot in a moment. You've got about sort of three or four minutes to think about it. Um, one great book recommendation. doesn't have to be in English. It can be in any number of, of the 10 languages that Swiss Info uh, broadcasts in. Um, but before that, though, um, I'm very happy to say that uh, I'm joined from Mykonos, which makes sense as we're in the, in the holiday season, uh, by Mia Levitin, uh, literary critic, uh, and uh, is joining us uh, on the line uh, from Mykonos uh, now. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Tyler. You'll be happy to know I'm not hogging a sun lounger. Okay, that's good. Uh, you're you're, yes. you're not you're not down poolside uh, yet. Listen, um, in, in advance of this, uh, we uh, we got a great uh, lineup of, of titles uh, that um, that you would sort of recommend. So maybe sort of give us sort of the the the, the appropriate. Um, pitch um and and you, you we've got five of them here um but uh, but where do you want to start and maybe and maybe you could sort of tell us when we think about not the sun lounger hog but someone else who who you might sort of see in mykonos who this book might be for as, as well mia well this book i probably won't see in mykonos to be fair so my first pick the first thing i'll be reading this summer is the succession scripts which are out from faber Seasons one, two, and three are available already. Season four is published later this month. And I think they're just such a unique peek into the creative process. Um, but the reason we're unlikely to see them here is I will warn you, they're quite voluminous, um, over 700 pages of pop. So probably more appropriate for your car journey or even you know if you're home at all this summer. Um, and just to, so, so of course, you know, if, if you've if you've seen all of the seasons of Succession, uh, but then I get the scripts. Um, you know, as, as you're saying, is it uh, how how in depth? Because I think oh, you know, you could sort of see it if I if I went to Daunt Books or somewhere and I saw this on the bookshelf. I think you know, wh why do I need this? But what what does it bring me beyond um, what what I might have experienced on HBO? Well, interestingly, for something that's been so heavily memed and memorized, they've chosen to publish the shooting scripts rather than the final product. So that allows you to see, they've footnoted where they've deviated, um, they've got deleted scenes, so it's almost like a director's cut rather than just uh, the script as we would have heard it. And we've got some really insightful introductions about um, how it was conceived by Jesse Armstrong, how it was pitched, how the pilot was made. You know, remember that the it was born right at the 2016 election. So we've got a lot of political background on top of the family saga. We have one of the executive producers writing about, you know, how it fits into family dynasty narratives more broadly. And one of the writers, Lucy Preble, on um, how it worked in the writer's room and how unusually actually for a program like this, they kept the maybes alive as long as possible. So rather than, you know, having the story arc mapped out from the beginning, like as you have in The Wire, um, 
it was a really a live process between the writers and the actors, which I found fascinating. Okay, um, we might not even have time for all five, um, but uh, I've, I've got four more on the list. Which which one do you want to uh, hit next? Okay, so The New Life um, is an Orwell Prize for political fiction winning debut novel from Tom Cruise. He's an editor at the LRB, and it is about the fight for gay rights in Victorian England. Um, the reason I think this one's great for summer is it wins my Good Sex Award of the Year. It's got you know a really amazing opening sex scene between two men, and it is a loosely historically based um, novel. He he rejects the term historical novel, but it's loosely based on two real historical figures who are Henry Havelock Ellis, who was a sexologist, and John Addington Simmons, who was a writer. And the two collaborated on, on a book called Sexual Inversion. Um, and it tells the stories of their kind of families. Uh, John was a closeted married gay man. Henry was straight, but married to um, a lesbian in a platonic relationship. And he kind of really paints these characters very um, sympathetically, including kind of the long-suffering wife. And you've got... Um, also a, a sort of strand of feminism because um, Henry's wife is a kind of f- feminist advocate. And basically it takes, it starts in 1894. Uh, Oscar Wilde's trial happens in 1895. And so you've got um, a really poignant um, decision to be made on the part of these men as to how much kind of personal risk they want to take. Um after you know wild trial which is excerpted quite effectively in the book okay think, maybe we've got, sorry maybe we've got about one minute for you you've got three yep. three book three books so we're, are we going to go for mid forbidden sure. notebook are we doing muppets in moscow yes, yes, or yes. Are, we going, are we going big swiss which 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 is going to be okay let's go with forbidden notebook which is um the cuban italian author alba de cespedes translated by the inimitable Anne goldstein um, I've called it the stoner for women. It's like uh, published in 1952. Um, it really kind of encapsulates the oppression of motherhood and um, wifedom in kind of mid-century Italy. And um, it's both, you know, existentially angsty and yet funny. And I think uh, it's really one of my favorite books this year so far. Okay, we're going to have to have you uh, rejoin uh, in, in a couple of weeks as we continue this literary tour. Okay, because I'd love I de- to hear I defin- on your reading Because well, I, I, like I, I want to hear about Muppets in Moscow. Um, it's sort of the mind boggles. And, uh, and well, as does the Big Swiss. Who knows what it could be about. Uh, but uh, Mia Leviton uh, joining us from Mykonos uh, this morning. Uh, thanks uh, very much for that. Very quickly, Fabian, if you have a book uh, for our list. Oh, our definitely, what, yes. What would it be? Tell uh, us. I'd highly recommend Anna Maya's Geldspiel Keine Rolle. I think it's not been translated to English yet, so unfortunately, but she writes brutally honest about how she spends money in a very entertaining and very honest way. Um, I didn't know how much money you can spend on a cat therapist. Oh, I think that a lot on a cat therapist. I mean, that was actually a theme at one of the talks you were doing it was, earlier this week. You're heading to the mountains where you're hoping that there will be no cats there'll at the no, hotel you're going no to. There will be no cats, indeed. Oliver? Yeah, my summer book um, is Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life by William Finnegan. Uh, won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago. Um, you just want to dive into the next wave when you're reading this. 
Alexandra. We did an interview with a Swiss port CEO who said this year was the revenge travel year. So instead of traveling, I'll be reading Anthony Bourdain's World Travel to get myself in the spirit for next year. Very good. Um, Emma Nelson, been fantastic having you here. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for your welcome. And you're also be with our listeners a little bit longer today. Yes, uh, I'm with well. you until uh, 1600. I have one recommendation for a book. For okay, tell us. Elton John's autobiography. It's absolute filth. It's brilliant. Oh, it's absolute it's filth. It's a total screen. Okay, so that's, that has to also yeah maybe join... Uh, in, in totes and every, every, well, whatever people are carrying on it's board. It's so well written as well. It's one of those books you scream with laughter when you read it. Excellent. Well worth it. Emma Nelson, lovely having you here. Of course, you're with our listeners across the morning. Uh, Fabian Kinselman, uh, also Oliver Stravis, Alexandra Andrist. Uh, and of course, uh, we had our Petri Burstoff and uh, in Helsinki, James Chambers as well. Mia Leviton uh, joining us on the line from Mykonos. Our show today was produced by Desiree Benley and Emma Nelson. And our studio manager back in London was Steph Chungu. I'm Tyler Berlay-Monocle. On Sunday is back next week. Have a good week. Goodbye.